resurrection, confronted by the resurrection. So this Easter Sunday, we resume our series, uh, indeed, in the Gospel of John, as we arrive at this great chapter, chapter 20. Now, in this chapter, we, we move from tears, we move to shock, and then to absolute joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I like the movies I watch and the books that I read and the stories I hear to have happy endings. Yet, you read any biography of a missionary or a preacher or any other famous person, and it is inevitable that somewhere toward the end of the book or the movie or the story, they will die. The same, you see, will happen to all of us with 100% certainty. Unless, of course, you are that generation that is alive when Jesus returns. There has only ever been one exception to this, and that was Jesus. Only he had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. And this is why his resurrection is an essential, crucial part of the Christian message that we proclaim. As we will see, these final two chapters in John, chapter 20 and chapter 21, Jesus' followers display very human behavior when confronted with something so incredible. And there's a good reason for that, because none of them expected Jesus to come out of the tomb alive. I'm sure if we were, if we were there, we would have behaved exactly in the same way that they did. Yet these final chapters go against, go against everything that was expected. It goes against the very grain of how in our natural human experience, life is supposed to end. And it is because of this fact that it becomes transformational and also defining for all believers for all time. And John begins this chapter with a factual historical account, a personal eyewitness description of the events on that glorious Sunday morning. John, the beloved disciple, was there at the cross when Jesus was crucified on on preparation day, that Friday afternoon, he described Jesus' body being taken down from the cross before sundown on Friday. His body was then wrapped in linen and buried in the tomb prepared by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Luke tells us that the, the women followed and saw the tomb where Jesus was laid. And for all his followers, it must have been the longest, saddest, miserable Sabbath that they had ever known. The day of rest became a day of sorrow and mourning. Rather than celebrating the death passing over the Israelites as they were liberated from Egypt, suddenly they felt the darkness overwhelmed them. But everything changed on Sunday, the first day of the week. So let's look at this passage a lot closer. Just the facts, verses 1 and 2. Just the facts. Let's read those verses again. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Remember how John in the in the first chapter said that the light had entered into the world and the darkness would not overcome the light? So when John says that Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark, he is again giving us a deeper meaning, a, a deeper layer of what he normally does in his gospel. He gives us a deeper meaning to darkness. In a way, as Mary made her way to that tomb, in her mind at least, it looked like darkness had won with her Lord dying in the tomb. In her grief and sorrow, it appeared that she was enveloped, just like everybody else, enveloped by darkness. She probably, in her grief and sorrow, she probably didn't sleep that night as uh, she was preparing herself, mustering enough courage to say that final goodbye to Jesus' body. That's what she was planning to do on that first day of the week with the other women. But as the sun rose on that Sunday morning, it will become evident of the magnitude of the redemptive event that Jesus had, in fact, accomplished. It was all obviously too much for them to comprehend at the time, but this was, this was the dawn of a new day. Now, just backtracking a little bit, Joseph of Arimathea as well as Nicodemus were forced by circumstances to prepare Jesus' body in a hurry because they needed to bury him before the Sabbath began, which begins at sundown on that Friday. So the women saw that this work was incomplete. It wasn't done properly. So they wanted to complete the work, do a proper job. And that is why they they made their way early on that first day of the week towards the tomb, because they know where the tomb was. And this is... The other thing was that on the Sabbath, because it was the Sabbath, you couldn't do any work. You couldn't... Certainly you couldn't touch anything that was dead, because that would be impure. They waited until the first day of the week, which for us is Sunday. That's the day for which they were preparing themselves. Now, it must be said that anyone who starts on a project, any type of project, you you make plans, you you try and, and get all the materials, you 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 try and and anticipate the challenges that might be encountered before you start. And uh, Jesus spoke about this principle when he said uh, in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why don't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? And Mark tells us, the gospel of Mark tells us that although these women were caring and committed to Jesus, that they wanted to do the proper job, they didn't plan ahead. And they didn't think about one particularly big obstacle, one big problem, until they were they were well on their way there. 
And the question was, the challenge was, who was going to move the stone? They had no way to roll it open themselves. Maybe they were hoping the small band of soldiers would, out of their own kindness, would be there and and do it for them. But but this was, it wasn't going to happen that way because it was sealed. Nobody was supposed to open it. Or maybe they thought, we'll figure it out when we get there. In the end, of course, they didn't have to worry about any of those things. It's interesting that the Pharisees, they actually heard Jesus' word about rising from the dead. His enemies recalled Jesus' words about rising from the dead. They were fearful about that, so they sent guards to the tomb to prevent his body being stolen away. The irony is, and this is the way that God works, the irony is that they played into God's hands because by setting the guards there and sealing the stone, they actually made the case of the bodily resurrection of the Lord much more powerful than it would have ever been. That's the way that God works, isn't it? In her determination, all the women went together, but in her determination, Mary Magdalene evidently went ahead of the group and arrived at the tomb before everybody else. And in her shock, after she saw that the the stone had been removed, She left before all the other women arrived. And when she saw the open tomb, she didn't wait for the others, but ran to tell Peter and John. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 28 verses 1 to 4, just gives us a little bit of detail as to what happened during the night in the early hours of the morning. That a violent earthquake, it says, it describes a violent earthquake happened and the stone sealing the grave was rolled back by the angel of the Lord. Of course, the stone was not removed so that Jesus could get out as if he was trapped in there, but to allow all those who who came to see the body to actually witness that the tomb was indeed empty, that Jesus was gone. Let's think about this a little bit further. It was important for Jesus to rise on the third day because that is what he said he would do. And it was important on the third day because everything was still fresh in their minds. If time had passed and say, I don't know, Jesus rose from the dead a week or a month or even a a year later, who would? Who would believe it? Who would even care by that stage? No, the soldiers were posted in front of the tomb to keep people out. But they could not be there indefinitely. Of course, when the earthquake began and it happened, the Romans, the brave Roman soldiers ran off. The angels appeared, 
They moved the stones and they removed all obstacles that hid the evidence. The stone, the soldiers would be removed and nothing would stop Jesus' followers from going inside and looking at the marvel of the empty tomb. So Mary went ahead of the group and arrived at the tomb and left before the other women arrived. It is good that Mary uh, went straight away to tell Peter and to tell John. But in doing so, all that Mary should have told them was that the, the stone had been removed from the entrance and Jesus' body was missing. That's all she had to do. But instead, she goes further. She actually gives her opinion and makes an assumption that this is a clear case of body snatching, of tomb raiders. In 1987, there was a a movie uh, called Dragnet, and it was based on uh, on a long-running series from the 1950s called Dragnet. It was a it was a police show. And uh, while interviewing witnesses to a crime, uh, the the main detective, the policeman, uh, Joe Friday, would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. In other words, I'm not asking for your opinions or your conclusions or your assumptions. Just tell me the facts. Tell me what happened. Leave the rest to us. Now, if we're going to be faithful witnesses of the Lord, we also need to learn to stick to the facts. Stick to the truth revealed to us in the word of God. Don't go beyond it. Don't uh, make assumptions. Don't make false promises. Because what you're going, what if you do that, what you're doing is you're subtracting or you're adding to the word of God. So a, a good principle for all of us Christians when we are sharing the gospel, when we are sharing the good news of Jesus is to just tell them the facts. Just tell the facts, ma'am or sir, just tell the facts. Our next point from verses 3 to 7, that everything is in order, everything in order from verses 3 to 7. This is what we read. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, and as well as the cloth that that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying there in its place, separate from the linen. So after Mary went to tell John and and Peter, they set off, they set off on a, on a foot race towards the tomb. And even tells us that a bit of a competition going on here because the younger John got there first before the old man. And they, they knew where the tomb was. So when they they get there, it's definitely the right tomb. But 
just as Mary said, the tomb was indeed empty. All that they see when they look in are the grave clothes of the Lord. And all these grave clothes are are collapsed. There's nobody in there, but all these clothes are collapsed in a pile, in a neat pile. This is, particularly when, when you look at all the details that they go into, the placement and the linen and the cloth, this is the only but important evidence that Jesus had indeed ever been there in that tomb. Another important detail here is that except for the body missing, everything else in the tomb is in perfect order. And this is this is no minor detail because if the earthquake was too strong, it would have collapsed the tomb and, and filled it with rubble and all the evidence will be buried. No, this earthquake, which was a violent earthquake, was strong enough to, just strong enough to scare the soldiers and to remove the stone and the soldiers in front of it. Roll it away. And again, I go back to the attention given to the grave clothes. The grave clothes are neatly spread out on the slab where Jesus' body had been. The band that had been, the linen that had been wrapped around Jesus' head is is neatly folded in a place all by itself. The clothes were not in disarray as if they, they might have, as if they might have been if someone had stolen the body of Jesus. Why, why would anyone, think about it, why would anyone take the bands off and then steal the body? Why not take the body with the bands on it? It looked as though the body of Jesus had simply passed through the grave clothes, which had fallen into their place, and the body had simply vacated, vacated the linen and the cloth. And besides this, there's another important detail. Where was the value? Was the value in Jesus' body? Well, for us Christians, yes, but the actual value for someone who's trying to break in and steal it, the value was actually in, in the spices, in, in, in the, the cost that, that went into myrrh and aloes. And last, last week we, we spoke about the fact that it would have been around $150,000. It's a tremendous cost. 35 kilos off of stuff. That's where the value was. And I don't know if you follow a bit of history, but any time through history when there were tomb raiders, what happened in Egypt where they would get into, into the, uh, into some of the, the tombs of the, the pharaohs and others, they would make an absolute mess. They would raid, they would take the gold. They really didn't care about anything else. Here, everything is in its place. Robbers had come to steal the body. They would have definitely taken the expensive spices along with them. No. John looks at the evidence and draws the conclusion that no one has stolen the body. That somehow, some way, Jesus has risen. And unlike Lazarus who came, came out of the tomb, he was, Lazarus was still bound in the linen. That's why Jesus had to give the order. Untie him. 
This is definitely not a resuscitation. Even Lazarus, you see, even Lazarus who earlier walked out of the tomb, he still had the curse of death upon him. He would rise from the dead, but he will eventually die like the rest of us. I read once of a little girl whose home was uh, near a cemetery. And in order to, to go to the store, um, she would take a shortcut and uh, she would follow a path that led through, right through the middle of the cemetery. But this little girl never seemed to have any sense of fear. Even when she returned home through the cemetery at dusk, she wasn't fearful. And someone said to her, aren't you afraid to go through the cemetery? Oh, no, she replied. I'm not afraid. For my home is just beyond. It's just beyond. Isn't that a tremendous truth for all of us? Our home is not in the cemetery. Our home is beyond the grave because of Jesus. Let me ask you. Does this pandemic and all the news that is happening around, uh, does it fill you with fear, maybe even irrational fear? Are you afraid of the cemetery? Well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be because you know that your home is beyond. Yes, you might have to travel through it, as we all will, unless Jesus comes back, but our home is not there. This is not not our final place of residence. It is with him in glory. Our last point this morning comes from verses 8 to 10, belief and understanding, verses 8 to 10. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside and he saw and believed. And and then in brackets we have it there in the NIV, it says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And in verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. It's interesting that in our text John uses three, in in English it's it's just one, but in, in the Greek words, There are three different Greek words for seeing. In verse 5, the verb simply means a a, a glance or a look-in, just a casual look-in. Then in verse 6, the word means to look carefully, to observe. And then in verse 8, it means to perceive with with intelligent comprehension. That's verse 8. So this is how we can already see in the description that John uses, in the words that he uses, he's how the resurrected faith, his resurrection faith was slowly but gradually growing inside of them. But slowly. I say slowly because when, when John entered, he saw and believed. He tells us this in verse 8. Yet in the very next verse, it says they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what is it that they actually believe then? It appears to be faith, but faith with a limited understanding. And isn't this a constant theme throughout the Gospel of John? 
in, in other words, what John is, is confessing here, and it's, it's really good that he's actually being so honest. He says, basically, we really didn't understand the Old Testament. In actual fact, all those times, even when Jesus spoke to us of his death and resurrection, we still didn't get it. Thank you, John, for being so honest. And I think all of us should find comfort in that. If John and the others could read the Old Testament, hear the very words of Jesus personally, they were there. They saw the evidence and still not get it. But that gives all of us, it gives us hope with our little faith at times. I recall the the words of Jesus to to the father of the boy who was uh, possessed by a demon. And this is what he said to him in, um, in Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, with tears. This was an intense response. He says, Lord, I believe, but help, help my unbelief. That's honesty, isn't it? That is honesty. So Jesus had been dead for three days. And I know some of the purists would say, well, that doesn't add up to in the hours and stuff. But if we count the hours, if we count the hours, it would be at least 30 hours from one day to the second day and to the third in separate days from before sundown on Friday evening to before sunrise on Sunday morning. And when he rose, when he rose, his resurrection body possessed properties that his earthly body did not. There was no way a tomb could hold him. Later on, we will see how he could appear and disappear at will. He could pass through locked doors. He could appear in one location and then to another. This glorified body was very much unlike his earthly body. Yes, there were similarities, but it was glorified. He could not die. He will never die. And the resurrection of Jesus confirms his victory over death and hell. It signals the vindication of his claim to be God. We can now truly believe his words when he said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. It's further confirmation that the gospel is trustworthy. It shows the Father's utter satisfaction with all that Jesus accomplished on the cross as our representative. In short, it crowns the gospel with a visible sign of Jesus' victory over sin, our sin. And because of our union with Christ, we have died to sin and have been raised to life again in him. And this is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 11. These beautiful, marvelous words. This is what he said. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. 
Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Marvellous words, right? We are also dead to sin and alive to Christ. No longer slaves to sin, but owned by our master, Jesus Christ. This is why the Christian faith stands or falls on the fact of the resurrection. And it will become the central theme in the preaching of the gospel of Acts by the apostles and by the the followers of Jesus, the Christian church, for millennia after. This is why this truth has been more attacked at the same time it has been more attacked by the enemies of the Lord than any other. Yet for those who believe, those those of us who already believe and those who will believe, this truth is transformational. It is empowering. It is life-giving. Here is a living hope that will never die. It never, it can never be corrupted. It can never be taken away because of Jesus. Amen.